I think that in many respects, we are all illiterate in terms of healthcare at a certain point. I mean, when a doctor says to you, you have a serious disease, it's going to require a complex treatment. I think we're all pretty illiterate at that point. Healthcare is its own language. It has its own words, its own way of speaking, its own way of thinking, particularly in those first moments when somebody tells you that there's something serious wrong with you. I don't think any of us really speak that language. I think we need to recognize that health literacy is not a static concept. It is something that evolves and changes, and the, the dynamic shifts significantly over time. And that's true for everybody, regardless of whether they have a you know PhD or whether they barely finished high school. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with my colleague, Christine Wilson, who is the Vice President of Advocacy, Communications, and Marketing for the National Patient Advocate Foundation. During her time out of the office, she enjoys sports, hiking, and anything else that allows her to explore the great outdoors. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris, to really introduce this season where we are focused on redefining and reframing health literacy and proposing actions we can take to help facilitate equitable health care for patients, families, and communities. So let's start here. At NPAF, how do we define health literacy and communications? Well, that term, healthcare literacy, is really pretty deeply rooted in what you might call healthcare kind of bureaucracy and healthcare speak. And traditionally, it's really meant the ability for patients to find and read and understand information about their medical conditions so that they can make good decisions. And sometimes healthcare people have added the, and they'll follow their treatment recommendations. That's fine as far as it goes, but I think that we really are at a stage today where we need to think more deeply and differently about what healthcare literacy is and how it influences our communications with our doctors. In some ways, the traditional usage or, or meaning of healthcare literacy has a way of reinforcing some types of either implicit bias or making it seem like it's all on the patients, that they're the ones that need to figure out how things are done and not so much the responsibility of the doctors and the healthcare providers, or even potentially the insurance companies. I think we really are at a very good time right now where we can rethink this. And we don't need to assume that people from certain backgrounds or communities are illiterate. And I put that in quotes. And we need to make sure that it's with all communications, that health literacy and health communications are a two-way street, and that providers and organizations and physicians all share the responsibility for making that information accessible, readable, and understandable so that we can make good decisions about care. One thing that stood out to me initially was the fact that you said it's a two-way street in healthcare, but mostly, like you said, historically, that responsibility has been placed on patients or caregivers. So if there was something that failed in communications or, you know, like you said, someone was in, quotes, health illiterate, it centered around the patient or caregiver and not around the system. So how can we find solutions to build a community and system that is more of a two-way street? Well, first of all, before I answer your direct question, I, I want to say I think that in many respects, we are all illiterate in, in terms of healthcare at a certain point. I mean, when a doctor says to you, you have a serious disease, you have cancer, you have multiple sclerosis, you have something that's, that's going to require 
a complex treatment. I think we're all pretty illiterate at that point. Healthcare is its own language. It has its own words, its own way of speaking, its own way of thinking, particularly in those first moments when somebody tells you that there's something serious wrong with you. I don't think any of us really speak that language. I'll just give you a kind of a personal example. About 10 years ago, I noticed a lump in my throat, um, which turned out to be thyroid cancer. And I remember when the doctor gave me the biopsy results, my mind just went blank. I had spent my entire adult life in medical communications, figuring out ways to tell people that how to understand diseases, how to understand science, how to think about these things and how to make that thinking useful. And for in that moment, I couldn't even think of a single question to ask that doctor about the specific type of cancer or its treatment that I, that I was facing. So at that moment, I was really functionally illiterate when it came to my health as well. And that really changed, but it really taught me something, taught me something important about what we can all do. I mean, we can all kind of accept the fact that we don't understand healthcare or medicine or science until we're confronted with a reason to do so. But then we can also understand that there's a lot of resources out there and a lot of ways that we can we can reach that understanding. We can also have higher expectations for our doctors. When I told that doctor, who was a very good doctor, that I couldn't think of any questions, he just sort of said, okay, and turned around and that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have said, well, don't you want to know more? What, you know, what do you need to know now? What do you need to know for your next steps? I think that it is really to go back to that sense that this is a two-way communication, but that we also have to understand the circumstances. We have to understand that, that we are really entering into a kind of a foreign country when we enter the world of illness and that they speak a different language in that foreign country. And it might take a while to learn to speak that language and to understand what we're, what we're facing. And what are some ways that in those scenarios, doctors and providers can show that compassion or meet a patient in that moment of of shock or disbelief or fear or anxiety? I think there are two things. I think some of them are based on individual communication, the communication between you and your doctor or whoever you're dealing with at that point. And I think some of them are more kind of take place at a systems or organizational level. A key to this is time. You understand what your patient understands, what's really going on. You have to take a little time. You have to not be sitting there typing your notes in your computer. You have to be willing to not just answer questions, but sometimes ask a question about, you know, what are you thinking right now? What is your biggest concern? Did you understand what I just said? Maybe repeat back to me what I just told you. What do I need to do to help you move forward? I mean, those are pretty simple questions. I think sometimes doctors don't ask them because they're afraid that they will take time or they might not necessarily want to deal with, you know, an emotional aspect or they might not have answers that Doctors don't like it when they don't have answers. The other thing is, I think that we can build more into the system. I mean, that these things can be more integrated into how important information is communicated. And if you know you're going to give a patient a difficult diagnosis, maybe you should have the resources available. Here are the things that you can read. Here are the things that you can look at. Do you use the internet? Do you use your patient portal? How do you like to get information? What's the best way that I can inform you? And I have to say, I reached a relatively advanced age now, and I've never had anybody ask me those questions. And I think those could be integrated into clinical practice. Again, there's probably some fear that they'll take too much time, but they don't take that much time. They, they are just ways of opening doors that allow people to express what is important to them and to find that information that will, in terms of health literacy, help them understand and access and, and use the resources that are available to them. 
Those are all tangible walkaways and things that people can implement just from listening to this, whether they're a provider or patient or caregiver themselves, bringing those tools to the appointments with them. If your provider doesn't have it on one end, you can also show up with that in your arsenal as well. I would assume that over your personal journey through cancer, did you become more health literate as time progressed? You talked about that initial shock, but what happened over the journey of your cancer? Well, I think I was peculiarly well-suited to know how to look for information about the particular type of cancer I had. And it turned out to be kind of complicated. And it was it was hard work, frankly, to find the information that I wanted. It's even harder work. You can find the information, but knowing how to deal with that information, knowing what it means in your context. I mean, for example, the um, organization NTCN, which is a very good organization, publishes very detailed guidelines about cancer treatment, including guidelines that are designed for patients. But unless you know exactly where you are in that spectrum of disease, you know, you're staged this with that, and these you have these markers and those markers, it's very hard to evaluate that information. So it's not just having a bunch of stuff available that you can look at online. It's really being able to put that in context. And I think that's where your physician or your nurse practitioner or the person that you're talking to really has to play a role in helping you understand not just here's the basic facts, but what does it mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean in terms of, you know, the prognosis, the treatment options, the decisions I have to make? In terms of changing, one of the things I've noticed so dramatically, all the people I've talked to, is that you can start off being that kind of gobstruck, to use an archaic expression, person who doesn't have any idea what the doctor just said to you. And, you know, two months, six months, a year down the line, you become very well-schooled. You learn to speak the language. You learn how to ask the questions. You learn how to do those things. It's an educable. It's a set of skills thing. It's not just this big glob that you can't penetrate. These are things you can learn. And I always hope that doctors will respect their patients enough to understand that the person they talk to on day one is not necessarily the same person that they're seeing, you know, on day 60 or day you know, 200. One of the things I remember best is when I first started at the National Patient Advocate Foundation, I did a focus group with a group of men who had been living with an HIV diagnosis, some of them for 5, 10, 15 years. They were generally from lower socioeconomic groups, and they were not a well-educated group of people for the most part. And they all described how when they first got their diagnosis, all they could think of was that they were going to die. They were shocked what was going to happen to them, their families. 10, 15 years down the line, they all had become essentially experts in the treatment of HIV and of any associated other diseases they had. And not just the disease, but the system, how you made the system work for you, how you asked the right questions, how you got the things that you needed to get out of the system. So I think we need to recognize that health literacy is not a static concept. It is something that evolves and changes and the, the dynamic shifts significantly over time. And that's true for everybody, regardless of whether they have a you know PhD or whether they barely finished high school. Everything that you just said was just so spot on, especially that last piece of whether they barely finished high school or if they have a PhD. Do you feel like there are preconceptions about health literacy of individuals who come into an office, like you said, but some you know, barely finishing high school and some having PhDs and some coming from certain zip codes. Do you feel like that is contributing to bias in delivering the care that they need? 
Absolutely. In the many, many people that I've talked to and listened to over the years, we hear this over and over again. One of the advocates that we know very well, she's from Washington, D.C. She still lives in the same ward, the same neighborhood that she grew up in, and it's not a particularly well-off ward. She is, happens to be an extremely well-educated and accomplished person, but she still lives in her neighborhood. So whenever her doctor sees her address, he or she assumes that she is health illiterate. And she has to consciously ask a lot of questions or throw a few medical articles in front of that person and demonstrate that she speaks the language, that she understands that she is in fact literate. We have also talked to people for whom English is a second language. They've always talked about how because they're not speaking good English, their doctors assume that they don't understand anything about what's going on, or even just age. Older people are treated as if they are illiterate, simply by virtue of their age. So I think there are so many ways in which that those implicit bias and those assumptions are built into our our thoughts and our, our beliefs about who is literate and who is not literate in terms of, of healthcare. The worst part about it is that sometimes those assumptions take root in our minds without us even consciously making an effort to other people or put them in certain groups or think certain things. And I know that you have a degree in narrative medicine, which is a field that many people might not be familiar with. But tell us, how does this field, you know, contribute to rethinking and redefining communications and health literacy and tackling this implicit bias that that some of us deal with on a on a regular basis? Well, narrative medicine is really a very interesting concept and field. It was pretty much started by Rita Sharon, who's a professor of medicine at Columbia University, as well as a practicing physician, who decided that she wanted to get a PhD in English literature to go along with her medical degree. And from that, she came up with this idea of narrative medicine, which is really a fusion of humanities, of literature, philosophy, arts, with medicine and storytelling and active listening. And it's kind of simple in some ways. We, we work very hard on, on close reading of things. We spend an entire semester reading one book, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And when I first heard we were going to spend a whole semester reading one book, I thought, that's just crazy. But it's amazing what you see when you spend time with something. Instead of just shooting through a chapter, you actually really kind of boil it down and think about it. We did a lot of reflective writing. One of the keys of narrative medicine is to have a prompt to write reflectively, just, just to write very spontaneously to something that causes you to think about things that you might not have thought about. It's quite remarkable what comes up in that context. And I guess the third sort of pillar of narrative medicine is active listening. So when you take those things and you think about how they apply to a patient and doctor situation, it pretty fascinating because it's really based on physicians actively listening to their patients, letting the patient tell that person's story, reflecting on it. It's a kind of the, the equivalent of close reading, but except that you're really doing it with another person. But again, all communications are a two-way street. Communications are something you give and you receive on both ends. So it's also the patient. It's not just the physician. The patient also needs to listen. The patient also needs to be attentive. The patient also needs to sort of connect to the, the person who's providing that information. And as I said, it's, it's kind of simple in some respects, you know, listen, hear, pay attention, and, and respect the individual that you're dealing with. And it's, from that really emerges a different kind of communication. Traditionally, medical communications have been, you know, 
uh, the doctor speaking to the patient, telling the patient what to do, telling the patient what to think, and not really doing that two-way street, that listening. And when you change that dynamic, you end up with a different kind of relationship. And I think that's where we move towards trust, which is a very key word, I think, for any of this, whether it's health equity or health literacy or whatever term we want to apply to it, to actually having the ability to make better decisions and to come up with not just treatment plans, but care plans and things that really address what is important to patients and really puts it in the context of their lives and their overall situation. So I think narrative medicine is a remarkably good tool and a way of thinking that helps develop those skills and helps develop not just skills, but a kind of a, a whole mindset for how you communicate with another person, whether it's in a hospital room or a medical office or any place. So I think narrative medicine has been very useful to me in, in learning to, to hear people and to hear people's voices. And that's a lot of what I think all this is about. Health literacy is really about hearing and exchanging information and doing it on equal terms. Hmm. When you share that, a lot of it sounds like it focuses on respect, you know, taking time to slow down and taking time to listen and truly hear someone. All of that comes down to respect. It sounds so simple, but in practice, it seems to be very difficult <laughs> for us to achieve. I think respect is the key. I was mentioning to Gwen, our, our, our leader the other day, that even though I've interviewed and talked to literally thousands of patients during my career, I've really learned quite a bit from being at, at the National Patient Advocate Foundation because you encounter people from so many different cultures, so many different backgrounds, and they have very different ways of telling their stories. Um, some of them are quite different from the way I talk. I mean, they, they may speak very slowly. They may take a really long time to get to the point. They may sort of talk around things. And you start to realize that that doesn't mean that they're not intelligent or that they're not literate. It's cultural and individual and learning to hear those voices and learning to respect, truly respect those differences, I think is really a key to thinking about how we redefine health literacy as well. And with that basis of respect, what do you feel like providers can do to help advance better communications with their patients and improve health literacy for both patients and providers on both ends? Again, it comes back to respect. Some of it comes back to time because time is, time is in some ways a form of respect. I mean, giving people mm. the time they need to think about something, to respond to something, to ask their questions. I know some places, at least, if they know they're going to have a difficult conversation with a patient or a patient's family, instead of scheduling a 10 or 15 minute appointment, they will actually schedule those appointments for 45 minutes or an hour. They will give that time. Mm. And, you know, time is really a, a huge part of this because it's pretty hard to be attentive when there's a list flashing and it's on the screen saying, you know, here are the following 12 patients that are waiting to see you. And you know that if you give this patient a half an hour, that means that the next one is going to be at least 15 minutes late and it's just going to go that way the whole day. So I, I, I don't underestimate time. I think that's part of building it into the system, building it into the notion that in order to have these communications, we have to create the context, the situation in which people can communicate with each other, can have a two-way conversation. You know, I can find out what worries you most. Just another example, I talked to a woman a number of years ago, and she was a young woman. She was just in her late 30s. She had young children, and she had been diagnosed with uh, stage four breast cancer. 
quite shockingly. It turned out to be what they call a HER2-positive breast cancer, which is a serious form, but it's also quite treatable. Hmm. There are a number of really good drugs for it. And they were, she she told me that they, you know, that when she first met with them, they just kept explaining to her about these drugs and the treatment and how the treatment was going to be really good and how it was. And all she could think about was, you know, will I ever coach my daughter's soccer team again? Will I ever go on vacation with my kids? She even said, will I ever eat another lobster bowl? And I mean, so they were kind of talking past each other. I mean, she wasn't, Ill she was as illiterate as any of us when you're 38 years old and you're told you have stage four breast cancer. I mean, at, the, at that moment, but it wasn't that she, that she didn't understand what they were saying. It was that her concerns were more about what about my family? What about my life? So I think when we think about health literacy, we also have to think about sort of what you might call sort of physician literacy in terms of understanding what's important to patients, what matters to them, how you how you communicate with them on a level that, that really will resonate with them. Not just, we're going to start this drug on this drug and you're going to be doing it every two weeks, but, you know, this is what it means for your daughter's soccer team. So it, 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 it's not that complicated. Yeah. It is, like you said, what matters the most to patients. Because if you're talking to me about medicine, <laughs> and medicines and treatments, but all I can think about is who's going to be there for, for my children. Will I be able to be there? Then, yeah, I can't hear any of the things that you're saying. Even if I might fully understand what's going on, I'm not hearing you because my focus is other places. So, yeah, that was a really, a really great example. Yeah, I, I always think of her. I mean, <laughs> she was a brave woman. Of course, she's a mother. She was worried about her kids. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. Makes, makes sense. Yeah. Definitely that human element, that human connection. I think tapping into that more would help us all be more mindful of, of what matters the most and where to steer the, the conversation. Because maybe that first conversation is about those fears and anxieties and, and worrying about your family and loved ones and everything like that. When I was working with the people at the University of Pennsylvania, they had a remarkable robot surgery program, which they, oh. for, for head and neck cancer. I mean, they were, I mean, now the rest of the rest of the world is kind of caught up. It, it allows them to get into really tiny places and do really intricate little things. And one of their patients was a gentleman who was a trumpet player. And he had a pretty advanced, had a cancer in his neck. And they said, well, we really can't do this surgery for you. Your cancer's too far. It's too risky. Your chances of survival are going to be much less if we do robot surgery than we do the standard surgery. And he said, well, does that mean I won't be able to play my trumpet? And they said, yeah, probably. It's going to cause a lot of scar tissue and that kind of thing. And he said, well, then I don't want it. So they were very concerned with the remarkable technical ability that they had to deal with this I mean, they could treat this thing, they could cure him, but they just didn't think he was a candidate for this other type of surgery. But he said, well, I'd rather die. If I can't play my music, I'd rather die. So they had to kind of hear him. And again, it wasn't that he was illiterate. He got it. He understood what they were saying. He was just making a choice based on what was most important to him. And, you know, they ended up doing the robot surgery, even though they didn't think it was the right thing to do. And I remember he actually wrote a, an original piece of music about his his journey with cancer 
and, and played it for everybody. And, you know, it, it actually worked. But but the important thing was that, you know, they could have thought, well, he just doesn't understand. He's not getting it. He's not getting how serious his cancer is. He's not getting what the treatment is that he has to have. But it, that wasn't it. He was making a choice based on what mattered most to him. So they hurt each other. And that that those are the kinds of things I think can happen. And if if we do listen and respect to each other. Yeah, that's a beautiful story and connects to some of the other work that we do at MPA focused on shared decision making and decision support tools and really having those conversations about the pros and cons and what life this will lead to for patients and those outcomes and, and measuring them, but based on what matters the most to the patient's livelihood. Right. Not categorizing it in terms of, is this person literate? Does, it, does he or she not understand what we're saying? I, I explained it to him, but trying to understand on a mutual basis what's important, matching the treatment to the person. And that's kind of literacy, I think, is what we really should be striving for. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcasts for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.